All right, welcome to Christ City Church. So glad you're here. My name is Robin. I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time with us, thank you for making us a part of your Sunday morning. Uh, we're honored you would share that with us. Um, before we jump in, we usually spend some time um, uh, reading Scripture before we jump in the sermon, that kind of thing. But I want to do one thing up front. I want to recognize two things, one in your bulletin, one that's not. First, in your bulletin, there's something that's, that says under announcements about us about us, something that we do this uh, once a quarter or so, and, and about us is that if you are new-ish to the church, you've been coming here maybe for the last few weeks or few months, and you're wanting to know more about the church. This isn't membership, um, but it is getting to know the staff and the elders more. Um, if that's you, which there may be several of you in this room, uh, after the service, we're going to have like a light lunch downstairs in the cafeteria. And we want to invite you to come be a part of that and to come meet some of the staff, meet some of the elders, uh, hear some of the story of Christ City, where we've come from, and even where we're going. And we'll even give you more information about maybe next steps if you want to get involved more at Christ City or if you want to maybe look at membership, that kind of thing. But after the service, if that's you, uh, or maybe you're just wanting a free lunch, either way, if that's you, you can head down, you can go through these doors here, down the stairs, and literally right below us here is a cafeteria. And so um, we would love for you to come and join us, get a free lunch, get to meet a few of the staff and a few of the elders. Also, uh, it's sad today, you guys are like, we are so done with sadness. Um, but it's sad today because one of our own, Christy Tarrant, she has been serving and as a, she's been volunteering her time as the children's director for the last several years. Um, how many of you know Christy Tarrant? Yeah, she's loved here. She's a, she's a great, great woman. Um, Christy has been overseeing as director of our CCK children's ministry for the last few years, and she's stepping down. Um, and so we're really going to miss her. Uh, she just feels like this is the right time for her. And in turn, though, we, we actually have others who will be stepping up. And this is even on the docket for us. We've known for a while that we've wanted to hire someone more in a part-time to full-time capacity um, as our children's ministry is growing. And she just knows this is something that she can't take on. And so with that said, today is her last Sunday. And we're going to be sure to honor her as a church and, and, and bless her. But if you want to, and if you would, when you see her downstairs, just go up to her. I don't know if she's really big on hugs, but you can try it out. Like, just go like, hey, Christy, give her a hug and say, you know, because sometimes you run up to somebody, give them a hug. They're like, who are you? You're new, right? But if you know her, go up to her, give her a hug, and just let her know. And just be sure to tell her thank you. Thank you for all you've done here with Christ City Church, because our children's ministry has grown uh, because of Christy, because of the amazing work that she has done given her time. So we're really grateful, and we're really sad, but we believe that what, what God's put on our heart is true and right for these next steps. So just be sure when you see her to thank her, all right? Um, with that said, would you please stand with me as we go before the Lord and His Word? We are in Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. That's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. General Electric Power Company, and uh, that's your New Testament. And then if you don't have a Bible, you can find one into the rows or pull it up on your phone. Hear God's Word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross." And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, this morning we come before you. It is our desire to love you with all of our hearts, to adore you this morning. And the best way we can do that is to take serious what's in front of us. And that is um, your word, that we would take seriously this moment that we have a chance to not just submit ourselves, but to surrender ourselves to your will, to your Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of us here that are coming from maybe very distracting or discouraging uh, weeks or even this weekend where we find ourselves in sin, we find ourselves maybe just disjointed. And we need this morning for you to be the God that C.S. Lewis talked about, that you would be the God who comes and ties together the parts of our lives that are dangling loose, and you would also be the God who comes and unties the parts of our lives that are knotted together, that somehow, some way, we can simply just be present and be here, and your Holy Spirit can do all the work, and that we would find ourselves so compelled by this gospel of our Lord, not just convicted and not condemned but compelled that we would leave here this morning convinced to live more in line with you, that the, the gospel would be grand and beautiful. And so we surrender ourselves to you this morning, Lord. We say, we are your people. Please speak to us. We are here. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We're in a series called, the Apostles, called We Believe, which is talking through the Apostles' Creed. And this morning, we come to uh, what's called the Christ, one of the Christ hymns uh, in the New Testament, and uh, Christological study. It's the study of Christ, trying to wrap our minds around who Jesus is. And um, as I was thinking about it, and, and even like what Paul's trying to say here, I couldn't help but reflect on, um, on years ago, I was a missionary. You may not know this, but years ago, I was a missionary um, in my early 20s. Um, I worked for a while in Western Europe, based in Switzerland. It was a hard life, but somebody had to go be a missionary to those people. Um, and then also in the Middle East, and uh, working with, with Muslims and churches there. And actually, before I moved to the Middle East, I, I, uh, I met Suzanne, my wife, and then I actually flew her over to, to the Middle East and then took her to Mount Sinai and proposed to her at sunset on Mount Sinai. Um, and then I remember, as excited as I was about that, I was also, I didn't tell her this, I was also the really, really, not equally, but really, really excited to go to Cairo, because I always wanted to see the pyramids. 
Anybody ever been intrigued or interested with the pyramids? Like I know, like more of you should have been. Those are, they seem amazing from, from far away. And so I remember thinking like, thank you, Josh. I see that hand. Um, I remember like thinking, I'm really excited about going to see the pyramids. Like they've really been hyped up in my mind since I was a kid. Um, these amazing structures that have stood the test of time. And, uh, and so it was like a seven hour uh, bus ride from where we were to Cairo. And I was like, oh my God. So we, we get on the bus and we, we make the drive through the desert. And then I remember uh, we were coming into Cairo and on, we were on the highway and all of a sudden I got a glimpse of the pyramids in the distance and they were huge and majestic to me and thought, my gosh, this is gonna be amazing. I can't wait to see them up close and personal, the pyramids. And then I remember as we got closer, they didn't look as big, but I still was convincing myself the pyramids are going to be amazing to see. And then we, we finally, like, got off the bus, and we were, they dropped us off. I thought they were going to drop us off, like, in the middle of the desert, because I thought that's where the pyramids were. But when they dropped us off, we literally were just on a bunch of concrete um, with some kiosks set up, people trying to shove, like, some, some really cheaply made purses and, like, pottery I would never want to use in my life, in my face. Um, a, lot of, a lot of men were hitting on Suzanne. That was a bit, you know, whatever. So, like, it was a whole thing there that was happening, very distracting. I look up, and literally, like, a hundred yards away in sand were these pyramids, and they weren't that big. Like, it's not that impressive, Pharaoh, right? Like, I've seen better things in life. Like, the pyramid here we got, Bass Pro Shop, way cooler than what I saw there. All right? Way cooler than I saw there. And so I, I remember like walking up to it. You're like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is the worst case ever. Like, these creepy dudes hitting on Suzanne, get away. Like, pottery I don't want to buy. Like, it's a really uncomfortable camel ride. A camel ride 100 yards to it, right? And I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I just remember thinking like, well, this wasn't worth it. Like, as big as it was growing up in my childhood, right, thinking and picturing it, and as big as it was is like driving up to it thinking, when you get there, it just wasn't that big of a deal. Now, have you ever had those moments in your life? Right. Where it's like, this is going to be amazing, it's going to be so great, you build it up, you build it up, you build it up, and you get there and you're like, ah, it's not that great. Like, I don't really care to go back to that again. Um, I kind of wasted my time doing that. This is kind of what we want to hit on this morning. Because for a lot of us with Jesus, he has been this great, huge, big narrative, belief, understanding in our lives. But for a lot of us in this room, the closer you get to Jesus, if you're honest, the less impressed you become. And that's a problem. That's a problem. Because at the end of the day, he's Lord. And like, you got to serve somebody. Like, you got to bow a knee somewhere. And there's a lot of us in this room that have been really reluctant to want to bow a knee. Arcade Fire, uh, they had this song um, called Ready to Start, and, and in there it said that um, all the kids have always known that the emperor, he wears no clothes, but they bow down to him anyway because it's better than to be alone. Like the idea that the emperor has no clothes, but like you keep wanting to like convince yourself that I'm going to do this. And I mean this twofold this morning. Because for a lot of us, what's happened is you've convinced yourself with some like old-time beliefs of Jesus, like, well, this is worthwhile, and I'll just keep doing this, but you're really not committed to it. You need something bigger and greater in front of you if you're really going to bow a knee. And here in this passage, when we look at the background 
of what's happening in the first century in the Greco-Roman world, we have all these people who have these emperors, and they've, they've been told by these emperors to bow a knee, to serve these emperors, that they are worth uh, believing in, that they truly are these gods, they're the rescuers, they're the ones who will make all things right in the world. But they just keep looking at the emperors, and they're like, this isn't right. Like, you have no clothes at the end of the day. Like, I really don't want to bow a knee to you. It really isn't worth it, because the closer I get to you, the more convinced I am that this isn't what I want in life. And so, I want us to look here at this passage, this incredible Christ hymn, something that, that has stood the test of time and that has given us a picture of Jesus, something that's so beautiful and so overwhelming that if we allow ourselves to really see it for what it is, it can compel us to really want to bow a knee this morning to the Lordship of Jesus. So, we're just going to look at like what it was saying to them, and we're going to look at what it's saying to us. And what it's saying to them is pretty profound. For an ancient Near Eastern person, Lordship was tied to the emperors in the first century. The especially the Claudian Empire. And I actually have a, a, a slide here I want to show you guys of uh, Emperor Ro, Emperor Ro here. So, what we have are these five emperors who um, for over 60, 70 years um, expanded this kind of first leg of Rome throughout this modern world going over into uh, Constantinople and into the Middle East. And so, here to the far left, uh, we have Augustus, and so he was the one who was in command and power um, at the time when Jesus, near the, near the beginning when Jesus was born, uh, but then next to him we have Tiberius, um, and then we have Caligula next to him in the middle. Uh, the guy who looks like Bram Stoker uh, is Dracula, uh, that would be Claudius, uh, and then at the end we have, we have Nero. And these uh, five men had really tragic stories, though, uh, because from a distance they looked amazing, like embossed like that and these headstones. But the closer you got to them, you realize they had some pretty tragic stories. So, like, Augustus was poisoned by his wife. Uh, Tiberius was assassinated by his son, Caligula. Um, and then we have Caligula, who was assassinated by senators and the Praetorian guards, okay? And then we have Claudius, who was poisoned by his wife in favor of, drumroll, their son Nero. And Nero, at the end, committed suicide, as you would when you have these four lineages coming before you. Now, I, I, it sounds light of these, but it's really sad because these five men shaped like this kind of Greco-Western world that was evolving. And from a distance, they wanted you to worship them, but the closer you got, you realize how sick and how broken they really were. Nero was famous. Nero was the one who was living at this time. You see, this passage, this book was written in the late 50s, early 60s of the first century, which would have been the time that Nero's mother assassinated his father so that Nero could step into power. And this is, this is what God's people, the early church, they were dealing with these kind of leaders in their life. They were told to put all their trust in these leaders, but they're looking around like, I, don't, I can't put my trust in these leaders, these people who were overseeing government. And he was so crazy, Nero at the end of his life, he was so crazy. Um, first off, 
he, he would throw these parties, these forays, and he would take Christians and he would tie them up in his elaborate kind of walking garden and he would douse them with fluid and then he would light them on fire and they would burn alive. He would do this regularly. They would burn alive as all the guests would walk through and enjoy their party. Uh, near the mid-60s, there was a huge fire that happened in Rome and it's believed that Nero started it, that he's the one that wanted to set Rome on fire, right? It's just that line that the joker said, some people just want to watch the world burn, right? Like some people just want to watch the world burn. He wanted to watch this world burn. And, and some have even said that he played a fiddle while watching it burn from his palace. And in turn, then, he decided to blame all these Christians for the burning of Rome. This is the world that first century church was living in. These are the kind of rulers they were living underneath. Regardless of what you think of any ruler or government official today in the United States, right, whether before, now, or after, it's nothing compared to this. Literally setting their country and their cities on fire, watching it burn. Crazy, insane, and yet they wanted you to worship them, to bow a knee to them, to confess how great and mighty they were. So Paul is writing to a people who are in the midst of experiencing this new emperor who is insane. He's also writing to them to communicate that, that these emperors are not on par with the Lord he's talking about. See, so these emperors would talk about them, themselves in ways that were, um, that were uh, extreme, that were superior. Uh, they would proclaim things like, Augustus started proclaiming that he was the Octorius, that he was a combination of power and prestige at its height. He also would proclaim that he was the Pontifex Maximus, that he was the high priest. These emperors wanted others to look at them as the end-all, be-all, as the greatest, that everything else paled in comparison. But what Paul is trying to confess or get the church to see and wrap their minds around and confess is that these emperors are not the Octorius or the Pontifus Maximus. They are not the greatest. They are not the ultimate rulers of this world. But truly, truly, Jesus is this, that Jesus is the greatest among all greats. And that as you get closer to Jesus, you will see that there's true power and there's true prestige, but there's also a true high priest. And the way he becomes Lord is not through pushing you down under his thumb and demanding a knee bowed, but he does it through a way of being so compelling with his life and his actions, you can't help but wanting to bow a knee down. The superlatives that Jesus is, that Paul's proclaiming about Jesus, are real and true. And here we find in this passage, there actually are four superlatives when it says that He is, He is, He is, He is. I just want to look at these up front because when He's saying He is, it's ringing the bells in a first century person's mind as they think about their current emperor. So let's look at these, these different superlatives. First, it says in verse 15 that He is the image of God. It says that He is the in, in the Greek, it is that he is the likeness, that he is the imprint. Matter of fact, in Hebrews, we're told by the writer, he is the exact representation of God himself. That if you want to get a picture of God, look to Jesus. Now, first off, though, by using this word imprint in the Greek, 
he actually is tying it to something that was a modern-day phenomenon, a way of propaganda and spreading the gospel, which the gospel is not a new word for the church. It actually was a word used to proclaim the news, the good news. Anytime a new emperor would come into power, even though they would assassinate the person before them to come into power, they would bring forth the good news. They would send heralds running to and fro different cities, and they would also pass out money, right? And on the money, there would be stories inscribed upon these coins, because the best way, they didn't have newspapers, it was too hard to inscribe, you know, tablets of stones and mass produce that. So the best way was to mass produce coins. And on one side of the coin, you would have the image of the emperor, and on the other side, you would have stories being told about this emperor to pass along the good news. I have a couple here to show you. So one of them here we find is um, from an emperor that said, Hey, listen, I want you to know something. If you ever cross me, you will be the person on the ground with the spear going into their chest. I want you to get this. It's really clear. So I'm this emperor, but don't cross me because this is what's going to happen. So as these coins are being passed out, people are going, oh, I'm so excited about Claudius. And like, oh my gosh, I don't want to cross Claudius, right? Like that's what was happening constantly. There was news being spread. It was news that others have been conquered and I will conquer you if you do not do what I say. But then we have someone like Nero, and Nero's really going for the propaganda here. So then we have a coin from him during his reign. So on the front side, we have Nero, all right? And then on, he's, he's got this whole like, like helmet strap beard thing going on, uh, not very becoming, but it's, it's stood the test of time, hasn't it? There's some in this room that have tried that out. Um, so he's got that going on. Um, and then on the other side, what we have is, is we have, we have Zeus. Zeus is sitting on his throne with a lightning bolt. And here's what Nero's saying. Like, I got a direct connection to Zeus. Like, I'm in touch with the gods. Like, if you come to me, I'll hook you up with Zeus. He is spreading the news that he has this connection, this power, because he himself is a deity and a son of the gods as an emperor, and Zeus is with him. So the propaganda is being spread. Don't cross Nero or you'll cross Zeus. These are the stories constantly being shared. Now, here's what Paul is saying. Jesus is the exact imprint. He is the coinage of God himself. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. He's the coin. On one side, you'd have God. On the other side, this is why the Gospels are so important. We have all these stories of Jesus performing miracles with people who are broken, with people who are in need, with people who are begging for a different life. We have Jesus showing up as the true representation saying, if you want a connection with God, I can give it to you, and I will be kind and compassionate to you. It's beautiful what he's saying is, is that the representation of God is not these coins you see passed around, but it's actually Jesus himself. He is the representation of God. F.F. Bruce said it this way. He goes, to call Christ the image of God is to say that in Him, the being and nature of God have been perfectly manifested, that in Him, the invisible has become visible, that you're wondering and questioning about who God is and does God care. Listen, without a show of hands, how many times have you asked the question, God, do you care? God, do you care? Do you love me? Do you see me? Are you with me right now? 
And then what he's saying to you is, child, read the Gospels. Because when I show up to earth, I'm always caring. I'm always loving. The Gospels are our representation. It's the coinage being passed around of who God really is through the perfect person of Jesus. So he says, he is the image of God. And that if you have your doubts, look to Jesus. He then says in verse 17 that he is before all things. And that because of that, he says then, look here with me, verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For an original hearer, all things were falling apart. All things were falling apart. Literally, just a handful of years after this passage was written, there was an earthquake that flattened all of Rome, turned it to rubble. They had to rebuild the city after it was set on fire. Think about how true these words held to an ancient person living in the first century. Your world is literally falling apart. You have rulers who are making insane decisions, hurting the masses. Everything's falling apart, fraying at the edges. You just want to give up on it. And here's what Paul is saying. This Jesus, this superlative I'm giving you about him is true. And it says he's before all things, and because of that, he holds. And it's in the perfect tense in the Greek, which doesn't matter to you as much as it means this. All things are always being held together. You can't say it that way because it sounds too weird. But all things are always being held together. All things will always hold together in your life. You'll never be able to undo things in your life. You should be more excited about this. All things hold together in your life. You're not good enough to untie the things of your life. God is going to hold these things together. He's going to get what He wants out of your life. That's an amazing superlative to look to about our King. And that's what Paul is saying to them. He's before all things. He's before these emperors. All things hold together in your life because of that. doesn't matter who comes into power, all things hold together and will always be held together. He goes on in verse 18. I love this. He is the head of the body, the church. And that's all he says there. He's the head of the body, the church. Now, I want you to think about how amazing, though, this is. Because he's usually, he's literally using the word head, like a human head in the Greek to describe Jesus here. And he's saying this, but where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Anyone? He's not there, right? He's in heaven, right? So Jesus is in heaven with the Father. But it says he's the head of the church, and he is a human head in heaven. Now, just think about this for a second. We have literally a human being hanging out in heaven right now who is interceding, pleading to the Father, standing in the gap for you. We have a human being in heaven right now pulling the strings of heaven, which means we have a human being with all empathy and understanding and care and concern for you as another human being in heaven pulling the strings right now. He is the head of the church. That means if you ever question, God, do you see where I am, you can nod your head to yourself and go, yes, because you have a human being in heaven pulling the strings and working together all these things. Someone who has true empathy and true understanding. 
Someone you can go, I can touch, I can feel like there's another human there. And it says that he is the head of the church and that he is in heaven. He is overseeing all things here on earth. And then the second half of verse 18, it says, and he is the firstborn of the dead. And this is amazing because he's saying to them, death at the end of the day does not get the last word in your life. That no matter what happens with any of these emperors you ever have, if they kill you and burn you alive, if everything falls apart in your life, death does not get the last word. That he has conquered over the thing that always 100% conquers you. Death is 99.9999999999% successful in life except for one person. And that one person changes history for you. And that means death no longer has the last say-so in your life, which means you get to live more and more as a person not gripped by fear and not cowering in your anxiety, but finally leaning into faith, going, I have something more to live for. I can go for it. I can actually risk in life, have some excitement and some passion and go for it. Because you have a God who has conquered death. And all these things, Paul is lining up. He's saying he is these things. He's the superlative. He's better than any superlative these emperors would give, don't you see? And that would have brought an amazing amount of comfort to an ancient Near Eastern person. So, but here's the question. What does that mean for us? So, what difference does it really make? I remember about six, seven years ago when I started teaching and studying this passage, I got to a real point of conviction. Because if Jesus is Lord, because that's what he's saying here, Paul is saying he's the real emperor, he's the real Lord. And I started looking at this going, if he really is this Lord, do I treat him that way? Like, do I, do I actually consider him really Lord of my life? In your, in your bulletins, there's this quote from Francis Schaeffer. It says, when a man comes under the blood of Jesus, his whole capacity as a man is refashioned. His soul is saved, yes, but so are his mind and his body. True spirituality means the lordship of Christ over the total man. Here's what he's trying to say to us here. That he is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Maybe said a little more southern. If he's the Lord of some, he's the Lord of none. Like, at the end of the day, you have to question this in your own life. Is every part of your life the total you brought under the Lordship of Jesus? Sure, Monday through Friday is, but it's Saturday and Sunday. Or how about most of Saturday is except for a few hours Saturday night? Or he's the Lord of all except for a few hours every night because I just kind of got to check out for a minute with X, Y, and Z things. Like he's the Lord of all except for your consuming of alcohol. He's the Lord of all except for your boundaries and relationships physically. He's the Lord of all except for like your eating. He's the Lord of all except for maybe like your work and like what you pursue and how much time you work. Sure, you've reasoned out. 60, 70, 80 hours a week is really normal and okay while your family suffers. 
He's the Lord of all except for how you treat your children. He's the Lord of all except for how you treat your spouse. He's the Lord of all except for how you treat others you're in your relationship with. But here's the question. If he's not the Lord of all, then he's, he's not Lord at all. Like, this isn't like a, you don't bargain with this kind of Lord. You get that, right? Like, you don't go to him and like, let's negotiate a few things here. I'll kind of give you this and you give me this back. Now, I'm not saying perfection. No, 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 but I am saying progress. So, like progress being this morning you walk away and you go, I know exactly what I, wanna, what I don't want to give to him, but you make a decision to get on the path to start giving it to him. If you don't do that, then you really can't call him Lord of all. I'm sorry. I wish I could make it different. I'm not trying to sucker you into some kind of conviction here. I'm just trying to give you the Bible. And the Bible is, if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all in your life. And the two things I would say that I was personally just walking away from with this passage that I wanted us to hear as a church is this. One, if he's really going to be Lord of all, then that means we have to stop cutting corners and making deals. Like stop cutting corners and making deals. Meaning, be honest with yourself and others with where you are in life. Like, I remember several years ago when I, was, when I was studying this, I was so convicted because I realized he was not Lord of all, meaning I hadn't brought all things underneath his, his lordship and his say-so. I still had things in my life I was holding on to, and especially in my marriage and in my personal life about just my own lust and practices in private, the things I would negotiate and say that, ah, I can get away with this. It's going to be okay. I'll just live under grace, Right? I wasn't living under grace. I was just abusing grace. And I remember being so convicted, and it started this whole process where I'm like, I have got to now start being honest about if he really is Lord of all in my life. And it starts with yourself. Are you honest with yourself about this? Or at this moment, are you checking out from what I'm having to say? You like the whole historical background narrative, but when it gets to this part, preacher, back off. But here's what I'm asking you to do. Just stay in it for a moment. Where do, you, where do you try to make deals with God and cut corners? Like you know Scripture says X, Y, and Z things, but then you don't really want to do that. Where is that in your life? Where are you trying to negotiate with God? God, if you do this in my life, I'll do this for you. And my question is, what else does he have to do? Like if he is this kind of emperor and this king, but he literally gives his life for you to have yours, what else does he have to do? You're just wanting to hold on to you being God and Lord of your life. And I know it's uncomfortable, and I know you don't want to do it. Join the crowd. Nobody does. Nobody's lining up saying, I want to give up all my rights to my own life today. That sounds amazing. But if we're going to follow him, we have to be willing to do these things. Because if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. The second thing I would say for us to consider is that we submit until we can surrender. That we submit until we can surrender. Listen, at the end of the day, surrender is the word. It's truly surrendering, complete acceptance. God, you, you have a say-so in my finances. You have a say-so in my marriage. You have a say-so in my relationships. You have a say-so in every part of my life, you. But we're not always like actually wanting to do that. 
So sometimes we have to kind of force ourselves to do it. And that's what submission is. And for me, personally, it wasn't just being honest about how many times I'm cutting corners and how many times I'm trying to cut deals. Yes, I had to be honest with myself and other people, but I also just had to do it. And like do it daily. And that means I had to stop living, stop living in a vacuum with me being the proprietor and the decision maker for my own life. And I just had to start being discipled. I had to start just saying, and, and honestly, you know, so many times we talk about discipleship, you want to have this kind of perfect ideal person disciple you. And I eventually had to give up and go, there's no perfect ideal person to disciple me because I think way too much of myself. I just simply need to submit to somebody who has more sobriety of life than I do and go that direction. To submit until I actually can surrender. Where are you wanting to bypass submission and go straight to surrender thinking that you'll just, because, okay, here's how I would say it. It's this process, doing what I'm told to do until I can do what I know to do. Submitting until you can surrender is doing what you're told to do until you can do what you know to do. So, as a child, Charlotte has to submit to my lordship, right? Big, strong, Mississippi, Iranian guy in the home, like, you're going to submit. Now, she does a horrible job submitting, and she's not good at it. But we're trying to teach her on this, like, no, you have to go to bed right now. This is not negotiable. This is happening, right? It's constantly like wanting her to submit to the lordship of, of our eating plans at the house. And we're constantly like, okay, gosh, this is such a wrestling match. Because one day, I don't need Charlotte simply eating Go Yogurts when she's 25-year-old, right, and eating, and eating Pirate's Booty every day. Like, I don't need her doing that. I need her making better decisions in her 20s and 30s. Because one day, she's going to be on her own, and she'll have to, to surrender to the fact that life is life, and you don't get to eat whatever you want when you want. But if you think that way, you're going to ruin your life. So that means right now, I need her to submit so that one day she can surrender. So it's doing what you're told to do until you can do what you know to do. It's moving from submission to surrender. Here's the question, are you in that kind of relationship today? And if not, to truly ask the question, why not? To be honest with yourself, what are you trying to avoid? What in your life are you not wanting to let go? You know what that is. What's that thing that anytime somebody tries to shine a little bit of light on it, you go crazy? You cut them out. You don't want anything to do with it. What's that thing? Is it your spending habits? Is it your personal time? Like how often you're playing Clash of Clans or whatever it may be? Is it the things you watch? Is it the things you consume? Is it the ways you speak to people? Is it the ways that you cower with people? I don't know what it is in your life, but whatever it is, any, you, here's, here's how you know what it is. Anytime somebody tries to shine a little bit of light on it, you lose your freaking mind. And you tell them to get away. And here's the thing. It's not your spouse's job to make you more into the image of Jesus. This happens a lot in marriages. Like one spouse, right, is not willing to surrender to marriage and what it looks like. And what you want is you just want somebody else to kind of force it on you, to tell you how it's supposed to work in life, but you also want to resent them over it. 
Here's the end of the day, that's just a broken system. At the end of the day, it's not that you're supposed to make your spouse your Lord. You need a better Lord, but you practice it out in marriage. You submit till you can surrender. It's the same thing in your relationships, even outside of marriage. What are you not wanting to let go of in your life? What are you so convinced that you have to convince yourself of and others that it's okay? And there's your thing. There's what he's not Lord of. And that's what it'll take for you then to be able to give up, even this morning, to say, God, if you are not Lord of all, then you're not Lord at all. And I need you to be Lord over this. That he's not your co-pilot. Remember those, remember those bumper stickers from, from the late 80s, early 90s? What a stupid, idiotic idea that person had. What horrible theology. And I'm sorry if you've had one. I hope it's not on your car after today. All right. So, like, he is not your co-pilot, right? Because you are not the pilot. You are not the captain and commander. You are a human being, right, who makes really bad decisions on a regular basis, right, who zones out to Netflix and goes into black holes, right, who is constantly thinking that it's okay to eat Chinese food after 8 p.m. and you turn into a gremlin, right? Like, you're constantly thinking, like, I'm going to make this good decision for my life, and it's not. It's horrible. You're bad at life. And that's why you need someone who truly is Lord of your life. He's not your co-pilot. Let's look at this last part, though. It says in in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's beautiful what it's saying here. It's saying, look, the fullness of God, all of God himself, everything that we see in this Yahweh in the Old Testament, this Yahweh who creates the heavens and the earth, who speaks everything into existence, this Yahweh that rescues, that rescues hundreds of thousands of people coming out of 480 years of slavery. He rescues them from slavery. That this God here, He is resting in the humanity and deity of Jesus. The fullness of God, it says, was pleased to dwell. And that word dwell is the word tabernacle that the fullness of God came to tabernacle to set up camp, set up shop for heaven and earth to meet each other. Because that's what tabernacles and temples were meant to do always in the Old Testament. A tabernacle, a temple, was where heaven and earth came crashing into each other and kissed one another on the cheek. It's where if you were a human in your frailty and your limitedness, wanted to interact with the gods, you would run to temple, make your sacrifices, and then find the favor of the gods. And what he's saying is the fullness of God came crashing into earth to dwell in this human being. And he, in turn, then, did not say, well, come to me, and if you cower long enough, then I'll let you in. It says, look at this. He came to reconcile, which in the Latin, re, back, consile, or counsel, means to gather together. He gathered back together. He reconciled. He gathered back together God's people, heaven and earth, bringing it together, making it one. How? Through the blood of the cross. 
through the blood of the cross. At the end of the day, you have an emperor, a lord, who does not burn the city down, playing a fiddle, going insane. You do not have a lord, an emperor, who demands that you look at him and worship him, even though that we all know he has no clothes on. But because we're afraid of not belonging, we do it. You have a Lord and Savior who says, I will give my life for you so you can finally have your life. I give my life so you can have your life. I give who I am so you can have who you are. That's the kind of Lord and Savior you have by the blood of the cross. By Him giving His, you get yours. No other emperor could provide that in history. No other ruler, dictator, president, whoever today or forever can ever provide that. This is the Lord you have, and you're telling me that you want to cut deals with this Lord? Like the Lord who rules all, who holds all things together, and this is the God that you want to come and cut deals and cut corners with? That you want to negotiate your submission with in life over all things? This is not a God you negotiate with. This is a God you simply bow a knee to because He is filled with grace and compassion and love. You come to Him not because He suppresses you down. You come to Him because He put Himself down so that you could be lifted up. And that is a God worth following. David Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, religion is man searching for God, but Christianity is God seeking man. You have a God in space and time who left the cushiness of heaven, put himself in flesh to come to earth and to search you out to find you, to seek for you. This is the God you have. And you're telling me this isn't a God worth bowing a knee to? You're telling me this is a God that it's, it's not worth giving your whole life to? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, we have to make a decision. Who are we going to serve? If we're not bowing a knee to Him, we're demanding life to bow a knee to us. And in turn, here's what He's saying to us. I am now calling you, look at this last part here, verse 21, 22, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He is bringing you back, reconciling you to home. You ever, you ever just miss home? Like, I know maybe you don't miss literally your home where you grew up because maybe it was harsh and abusive, but don't you long for like what E.T. wanted, right? Like, didn't E.T. just want something like called home, and he wanted to get back there, and as good as all this was, he just wanted to get back there? Like, at the end of the day, we just want to get home. That's what we're looking for. And home is where God is. It's the thing that the person you were made from and the thing you were made for. And that's what Jesus came to do by His blood so that now you can go forward and proclaim this message in the rest of the world. So this morning as we come before the table, this is all I want you to consider. What are you holding back on? What do you not want to give up? Would you just be willing to be honest with yourself about that? Not to condemn yourself. And where are you looking not to truly surrender, but you just know that you've got to start submitting right now? And you need help doing that. Listen, if you're living in a vacuum of relationships, you have no one who gets a say-so in your life, 
you actually will not be able to call Him Lord because that means you're trying to take ownership of things in your life, make decisions on your own. So do you need help with that this morning? Do you need to come down and pray with one of the deacons or one of the elders saying, He is not Lord of this area, but because He is not Lord of this, then I know He's not Lord of all, at all. And then would you be willing to see this table here as a point of grace? This is table represents God seeking man. So this morning when you come down, you're not seeking Him. You're simply coming to Him because He sought you out. That's what grace is. Would you be willing to consider that today? Jesus is Lord. Because if He's not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. But He can be this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are convicted that your son perhaps is not Lord of all in our lives, and that's a problem. We need him to be. We need him to be Lord of all in all things. So this morning, we're going to bring to you things perhaps that we're having a hard time letting go of, but because of grace, we can come down these rows, partake of your body and blood, and say, God, I give it to you. Jesus, I bow a knee. I'm done cutting corners. I'm done cutting deals. And it may take submission before I get to surrender, but I'm willing to do that. Holy Spirit, would you guide us, show us, convict us, and compel us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.